Lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. Thanks for being with us today. We've got a really interesting show. I've got a guest, Joseph Selby, and he enjoys making the complex and the obscure simple and clear. He's the author of Break Through the Limits of the Brain, How Neuroscience Supports Spiritual Experience, The Physics of God, A Unification of Science and Religion, and The Yugas, A Factual Look at India's Tradition of Cyclical History. He's known for creating bridges of understanding between the modern evidence-based discoveries of science and the timeless experience-based discoveries of the mystics. He's a dedicated Kyra yoga meditator for nearly 50 years and mediator, not meditator, but he probably does both because he teaches yoga and universal experiential spirituality throughout the U.S. and Europe. In 1975, Joseph became a founding member of Ananda, a spiritual movement inspired by the teachings of Yogananda, author of Autobiography of a Yogi. His role as teacher and minister and decades of study under Kairyanda, that Ananda's founder and direct discipline, gave him a deep dive into Eastern philosophy, meditation, and comparative religion. Joseph appears with Elizabeth Rahm in the 2014 docudrama, Finding Happiness, which showcases Ananda Village, one of the most successful spiritual communities in the world. Joseph comes from a family of scientists and engineers. He's a critical thinker, grounded in fact-based approaches to discovery. He has studied physics, chemistry, and microbiology at the University of Colorado. His presentations, classes, articles, and books have always blended science and spirituality. Joseph, thanks so much for being with me today. Uh, my pleasure, Lee. Thanks for having me on your program. So, you know, I've always found the, the combination of science and spirituality to be interesting because I can see how they tap into each other. And a lot of people will talk, they keep them separate. You know, one is science is science and spirituality is spirituality. But I've always seen how they how they can integrate. How did you begin that integration of the two? Well, I was raised in a family, um, as you mentioned in my bio, of, of uh, scientists and critical thinkers and went into college uh, thoroughly expecting to come out with a degree in science. But somewhere in the middle of my college years, I got drawn to meditation and the inner experience that that gives you that is um, undeniable. It's not an experience based on uh, a, a series of beliefs that somebody is offering you to, to embrace, but you get to directly experience it. And that brought me to the conclusion that if this is a true experience that I'm having and I can feel it and I know it, then it has to square with science. There can't be two realities. There can't be uh, one that deals with 
the subjects that are, are dear to scientists and then another for uh, those of us who are drawn to spiritual practices. So I really dove much more deeply into the science that I was studying as well as the spirituality that I was learning and began to see that there, there really is no conflict. It's really more of a matter of interpretation. Uh, a lot of scientists interpret the discoveries of science to mean that there can't possibly be God. There can't possibly be consciousness. There can't possibly be anything beyond uh, matter and energy. But other scientists, notable scientists, Einstein and Bohr and Heisenberg and Schrodinger and a long list of others, interpreted the discoveries of science to include higher consciousness, to include a view of reality that um, embraced the direct experience described by spiritual teachers and by saints and by saviors. So uh, I was delighted to find that there really was no conflict between the two. And in fact, they both support each other. So the first time that, that you experienced meditation, was it on a conscious level? Was it on a subconscious level? Well, uh, anybody who has attempted to meditate can attest to the fact that uh, your first forays into it aren't necessarily that successful because you, uh, you find yourself fidgeting physically and you find your mind uh, zooming off into uh, what happened during your day that day and what you need to do tomorrow and issues you have with other people. And so initial forays into meditation can just be uh, kind of like musing, you know, kind of considering your life and your day, which can be useful. But once I was able to sit with enough stillness and to kind of witness my thought processes slowing down and becoming uh, calmer. I was then able to experience the real payoff of meditation, which is that I could feel a sensation, both physically but more subtly, of peace, of love, of bliss, of energy, and it wasn't all or nothing. It was just, at first, kind of a, a quiet experience, but, again, undeniable and wonderful. And that, really, more than anything else, set my feet on the path my, my life has, has turned into, of wanting to be able to go deeper and deeper, experience that more and more so that over time I'm able to more reliably, more quickly get to that payoff, get to that inner experience and, and communion with spirit that uh, 
through meditation is the, is the primary way that I get to it. Other people um, can do get to it through deep prayer, sometimes extraordinary experiences, but meditation has really been, for me, that consistent way in which to tap into that, tap into that super conscious potential that all of us have. Well, it's interesting because I've had a lot of people on my show and we talk about meditation and it's such a unique, personalized experience. And to me, for myself, that's what I enjoy. That's something that I can share with people. I can talk about it, but nobody can feel it the way that I do. I'm not familiar with universal experiential spirituality. Could you talk to us about that? Well, a lot of it comes to us from the East, comes to us from India, from China, uh, but it also is part of the more esoteric Christian traditions. And it all starts with us as individuals, not with a belief system that we embrace. And those belief systems can be useful. It can be inspiring. If you're a Christian, it can uh, draw you into uh, attitudes and behaviors and uh, a whole life direction that's very positive. The same can be said about Hinduism or Buddhism or uh, any, any direction that one can find within those, those traditions are positive. But Universal spiritual teachings begin with individual experience, and that's why they really, in a very real way, they begin with meditation. That the, the teachings basically say, if you sit with enough stillness, and if you concentrate with calm clarity for extended period of time, you will experience deep levels of non-physical reality, deep levels of subtle reality that includes the presence of spirit, and in that presence of spirit, joy, love, bliss, happiness in a, in, that is unconnected with anything that's going on in your life specifically, but just wells up within you. And that is the sort of core teaching that you get if you really dive deep into what Christian saints experience, or Hindu saints experience, or Chinese sages experience. It's They're all getting to it in the same way. Stillness, inner absorption, and then they may use the words that work in their particular culture at their particular time to describe what they're experiencing. Or just let me give you one example is uh, a lot of uh, Christian saints would describe fire, which for us today seems like a really weird thing to be <laughs> perhaps a really weird thing to experience in meditation. But they had no other way to describe uh, light. 
in their times. And so fire was the closest thing that they could come to what we know as, as inner light. So if you take care to, to really think about what they could have meant by the various ways in which they described their experiences and to, to understand that their inspiration could be coming from very different spiritual traditions, you begin to see this similarity. You also see it in near-death experiencers when they talk about what they experience. Um, in, in a way, they achieve the goals of uh, meditation, perfect stillness and complete inner absorption, accidentally <laughs> and unintentionally. They die. And in that death, they're suddenly freed from their uh, awareness of the physical body. And there's all sorts of stories about how they might rise above it in an operating theater and be able to see what nurses and doctors are doing. And then they may go on to um, a more expanded awareness of the light opening up and into heavenly realms. But what they're describing mainly, again, if you really read it carefully, is just this amazing feeling of joy and expansion and love and safety that they're 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 protected, they're embraced by love and care. And then for many different reasons they come back to their body and uh, dive into their life again. But that is the same kind of experience, saints, sages, and, and many long, uh, long meditating people uh, also describe is feeling that expansion into a, a consciousness that is far greater than what they experience on a day-to-day -day basis when they are, you know, operating through their conscious mind and uh, relating to the world around them through their senses. That's conscious awareness. Superconscious awareness comes when that, that uh, to some degree or another, that conscious awareness begins to fade. And then the superconscious, this much more expanded awareness comes to us naturally. So that's the universal spiritual teachings. They're universal because they would happen to anyone who uses the teachings. It doesn't require belief in anything. It doesn't require um, any other person outside of oneself uh, helping us do it. It is something that we can apply universally, no matter who we are, what age we are, what kind of life we have. And if we put those principles to work, we can have profound spiritual experience. So, I mean, when you're listening to you talk, it sounds a little bit, one of your books, The Physics of God, when I was listening to you talk, I could hear God coming in and out for me, for what you were talking about. The book, The Physics of God, how is that? How did that come into being? Well, it's really a variation on a theme, if you will. I wrote The Physics of God before I wrote Breakthrough 
the limits of the brain. But they're both attempts to you know, describe how the the deep teachings of religion find a echoing deep theory of science and that when you can understand those deeper theories of science, perhaps more simply, I think people get overawed by science and by its seeming complexity, but there are really, um, I don't want to say simple because that makes them sound like they're not, they're not much, but they're not that complicated. And so when you kind of, uh, push aside all the interpretations of what these various theories are and just look at the theories and what they say is potential. And then you compare that to what the saints say, the you know, sages, mystics, near-death experiences are saying about what they experience, and you can see this congruency. So physics of God was my first foray into uh, trying to show that congruence between science and religion. And then Break Through the Limits of the Brain, which deals more specifically with neuroscience rather than, than perhaps physics, was um, kind of a, a, a taking that theme to the next step, which is, well, what does it mean more directly for us as individuals? How do we use that uh, knowledge that there is this universal spiritual teaching and there is science to back it up. How do we uh, make that real for ourselves individually? And neuroscience is, I think, the way in which that um, can happen, that we can uh, appreciate how our brain works now much more deeply than we have for centuries because with uh, imaging te techniques like fMRI and PET scans and spec scans, we can actually see what part of the brain is active when we do various things. And so we can see how different parts of the brain uh, light up, as they say, and the only reason they say light up is not because there are light bulbs in your brain, but because when you take these this data that's coming from the scan and, and turn it into a 3D image on a computer screen, what that program does that interprets all the signals coming from your brain is that it shows activity by uh, increasing the the, the intensity of light in that part of the image on the computer screen. So uh, once you get used to looking at brain data on these screens, you can see that parts of the brain light up. But really what they're saying is parts of the brain activate. And right. that can be uh, nervous activation or it can be blood flow that they're, uh, they're thinking of. But this well, you're, you're level right. of with, with the spec seeing the brain inside, Go ahead. Say that I mean, again. 
I, I, we've got about three minutes left, and I just, in the last three minutes, we're talking about the different kinds of scans. And with a spec scan, you're looking at blood flow. That's all you're looking at. With uh, At the Brain Performance Center, we do quantitative EEGs, and you're looking at the brain differently. You can look at the way the power is distributed in the brain, but you make a good point. It's where the brain lights up, and whether it lights up because it's overactivated or underactivated. If it's, you know, and then you look at the phase, the timing in the brain, and you look at the coherence, how the brain shares information, and it can give us, it can give us all so much information about ourselves and about the way we think and the way we process information and the way that we react to information. And, you know, I think fMRIs, it would be so cool to have one in the office that I don't see that happening very, very, very quickly with the cost of them. But it certainly, you know, and when you show people a brain map and you show them what's going on in their brain, it's almost freeing. It, 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 it truly is. And, you know, the, in the last couple of minutes before we go to break, I know that neuroplasticity seems to be the buzzword these days. And that's something that we look at is in neuroplasticity is the brain's ability to change. So is neuroplasticity something that you talk about in your book? Yes. Uh, and I think that's one of the kind of most telling discoveries really of the last, I don't know, 20 or 30 years. Up until that time, up until the evidence of neuroplasticity began to be, um, you know, validated and, and accepted, the previous thought was that you were born with a brain built the way it was and that the only thing you could expect it to do was deteriorate, <laughs> that the only thing you could expect to happen was that neurons in your brain would gradually die as you progress through life until your brain just wasn't working very well in the late stages of your life, uh, a pretty depressing, but also very um, uh, fixed kind of view of how people work. But now with all the evidence that's come forward, they know that anything that you do, and I know you know this, I'm speaking to your listeners, anything that you do will rewire your brain to support what it is that you do. So if you do new things, your brain rewires to support new things. The most classic example is learning to play a physical instrument. So if you start practicing the guitar to begin with, you're probably going to find it awkward. Your fingers don't go where you want them to go and they don't go easily and you really have to concentrate to make them do it and your rhythm is off and you wonder why you're bothering. But if you stick with it for a few weeks, you'll find that without the high degree of concentration that it required to begin with, your fingers start to do the things automatically that you have been training them to do. And that's because your brain has literally created new circuits to uh, enable that. 
And well, that's you're true right. everything we do. You're right. The brain has a philosophy, use it or lose it. And if you quit using those circuits, it shuts them down. And you can you can redirect that energy. We're going to go to break, but stay with us. And when we come back, we'll, we'll do a lot more brain talk. Do you struggle with knowing the right food for your lifestyle? Is there really a one right way to eat? As a chronic dieter, I was always so confused by the food rules and the fad diets. Where to even start? That's why I decided to go into health coaching. As your health coach, I will help you find the solution that is right for you. I will help you find balance. Unlike most dietitians and nutritionists, I focus on a whole person approach, not just food. I address stress, sleep patterns, underlying root issues, and so many other contributing factors to health. And as a mental illness survivor, I love talking about ways to fire up brain health. If you're interested in learning more and maybe even a complimentary consultation, contact me at www.sparkingwholeness.com or message me on Instagram through the handle sparkingwholeness. And now let's get back to the show. Lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. Before break, we were talking about the brain and, you know, and, and Joseph mentioned the fact that we used to just think that, you know, you get old, all those brain cells die and and you did, there's not much you can do about it. And we've learned so much about neurogenesis and how we can recreate those brain cells and keep forming new brain cells as we go through life. Actually, we can do that up, up until we die. So it's amazing to me the different ways that we look at the brain, the, the different functionalities and the fMRI and the CAT scan and the SPEC scan and the QEEGs. But there's so many different ways to look at the brain. And I think we all have our takeaways. And Joseph, what's your big takeaway when you think about the brain? Well, the brain is a faithful servant. So whatever you do, the brain will enable it uh, to whatever extent it possibly can. So from my perspective of universal spirituality, uh, encouraging people to meditate, uh, to, to having deep, superconscious experiences, the brain also supports that. It doesn't produce it, but it supports our ability to have that experience. And it does so through neurogenesis, neuroplasticity, and it begins to make uh, circuits that make meditation easier. Same as the example I was using before the break, that when you play an instrument, gradually the brain uh, creates circuits that support 
the particular finger movements and finger sequences that you need to be able to play that instrument. It does the same thing for meditation. So when we meditate, the first obstacle is that the body tends to fidget. And the more it fidgets, the more it stirs thoughts. And the more we stir our thoughts, the more we lose our concentration. So if you stay with meditation, even if it's only a little bit each day, your body will gradually uh, reinforce circuits that reinforce stillness until you can get to really profound levels of stillness. Uh, not everyone realizes it, but when you sleep, your uh, body actually, in a way, is shut down. That voluntary movements are disabled when you sleep. So that ability of the brain to just kind of switch voluntary movements off is something that we generally have, you know, no conscious awareness of. But if you learn to sit super still, that ability of the body will start to be activated just simply by going through your meditation routine. And the voluntary movements of your muscles in your body will subside. And then what you would see on an fMRI is that you would see the, the, the rear of your brain uh, starting to become less and less active. And then you can also see a result from the kind of concentration and focus that you want to achieve in meditation, also starting to get support that the forebrain of meditators uh, can light up to a much greater degree than uh, the average person. Because while you're concentrating, trying to remain in that calm, clear, focused state of meditation, you're building circuits that support that um, experience in the in the forebrain. And ultimately, even that you can transcend. So not only does the voluntary movements uh, start to just fade away and brain activity goes down as a result, mental activity will go down as a result. But your personal experience will be as if you've never been more alive, never been more aware, never been more uh, happy and, uh, and, and loving the experience. So you can use the brain, putting it simply, you can train the brain to allow you to transcend the brain. You can train the brain to create all these circuits that support the process of meditation which then allows you to have these transcendent experiences that are beyond the brain. Well, you're absolutely right. You can train the brain to, I mean, to do many things. And it, when the brain is in a regulated state, when the brain is in balance, the person is calmer. The person has more clarity. The person has more sense of themselves, self-awareness. And I think that that's where 
being able when you were talking about, you know, just being quiet and the brain has to learn how to wait and have patience. And I work with a lot of, of clients that have anxiety or, and depression and their brain has a really hard time with patience. And we talk about meditation and we talk about the different ways that people can start to calm themselves down. And I do know there's a big difference between guided meditation and unguided meditation. And I recommend that people start with the guided. Um, what's your thoughts on that? Well, a lot of people ask me that question. And uh, this, this may sound like I'm not answering the question, but my answer is the best way to go is the way that you will actually do. So well, no, I, I like, know what that means. For most of us, that means <laughs> guided meditation. So if you like guided meditation, go with guided meditation. Um, I- anything that you will actually do is the best kind of meditation for you. Uh, over time, you may find that you uh, are drawn to periods where you don't have the words guiding you or you can self-guide because you've gotten used to that guidance, uh, or you just simply want to go longer in your meditation and your particular guided meditation that you like runs, uh, you may adopt uh, more uh, specific techniques. I offer a technique in my book um, called the Hung Saw Technique, and it is a, a technique where you watch the breath this is not a this is a variation on a fairly common theme, but by watching the breath, it gives your mind something to do. The mind kind of wants to be focused on something, and if it's not focused on a guided meditation, it's going to maybe be focused on what you're going to do with the rest of your day. But if you can give it another point of focus of watching the breath, and in this particular technique of Hong Sa, you you say mentally the words Hong and then Sa with your inhalation and your exhalation. So you not only watch the breath, but you have a, a, a focus and you also focus at the point between the eyebrows, not in a tense way and not, not making yourself cross-eyed, but just... Uh, as if you were looking at a a distant object, uh, you know, hundreds of yards away from you, sort of that's the point of your of your uh, eyes focus, and just let your focus become the breath rather than anything else, and it has a a, a very powerful way of getting you beyond the normal stream of thoughts, which tend to carry us away. But again, any meditation that you will do is the best meditation. <laughs> and then in time, you may find yourself wanting to, to spend more time in meditation or experiment with different techniques. And I highly recommend them all. Um, I also practice something called Kriya Yoga, uh, which uh, which you mentioned in, in my bio. And 
Kriya Yoga is a breathing technique that is a kind of a, a beginning point for meditation sometimes where it really very powerfully uh, focuses you because it calms your breathing down really deeply and strongly. And I can't recommend that enough, but it's not something you can just read in a book or start right off with. Uh, it's something you need to, you know, kind of do some preliminary learning and experience like the Hung Sa technique, experience of meditation like the Hung Sa technique that gets you ready for that practice. Well, there's so many different you know theories on breathing, and I have the clients say, "Well, I do the box breathing, I do the four by four, and my response is very similar to you to yours. Do what works for you. If that's where you're comfortable, if that's where you want to go, go there. And I, I often share how I learned to breathe. I had just gotten a cell phone, and I was fascinated with it. And I had teenage boys, and I found myself at a red light picking up my phone and I thought, what behavior am I modeling? I can't keep doing this. So I decided to learn how to breathe. And at every red light, I would just put my hand down around my diaphragm, try to breathe in. You know, our optimal breath rate is between four and seven breaths a minute. And while we're talking, I'm probably taking 12 to 14. But to slow it down really required concentration on my part. And I used that red light time. That was about as long as I could keep in the beginning. That was about as long as I could keep my focus on the breathing, to be honest. But and my point with sharing that story is, is that everybody can change the way they breathe. You slow your breath rate down. You're going to slow your heart rate down. You get your breath rate and your heart rate to dance together and you're going to create heart rate variability which is a true sign of wellness. So for all of our listeners that are out there, just pick a time and stop and think about, I wonder how many breaths a minute am I taking? Put your hand down around your belly button and breathe in. And if you don't feel any air get down into your belly, you're, you're taking short, choppy breaths. And the good news is, is that you can change that. I mean, I can't even imagine how many breathing techniques you could get if you Googled it. Unbelievable, probably. How many do you think they'd get, Joseph? Oh, I agree with you. I, I, probably uncountable. Um, and, but your, you know, your overall point is really super important, I think, for people to realize. You can, you can look at your breath from, two perspectives in this. There's one is look at your breath in the various stages of your day and notice how you breathe when you're uh, concentrating or when you're in a difficult emotional situation or when you're driving. Just, just notice how your breath really does change. It goes into different patterns. The exhalation might be longer than the inhalation when you're feeling really relaxed. And the inhalation can be much longer than the exhalation when you're not relaxed, when you're tense. Um, 
And by understanding that your breathing reflects your feeling, you can then, I think, in a way, be more confident about the fact that if you change your breathing, you'll change your feeling. And that can be powerful. Uh, if you are, you know, feeling a knot of tension in the solar plexus, it's usually because there's something really uh, disturbing you. It's something you don't want to have happen. You're tensed against that experience. And that is a characteristic of that pattern of your inhalation being stronger and longer than your exhalation. So if you can, in noticing that, and as you said so well, you know, put your hand on your solar plexus or put your hand on your navel and consciously let your entire breath come in and then consciously let your entire breath go out, it doesn't take very long of doing that to actually change the mood, to change the feeling that you were having that was causing that tense, short breath. This is very powerful if, um, and as most of us are a lot of the time, if we're dealing with emotionally challenging experiences, learning to use the breath to offset them can be a huge help. In, uh, in in working through them. Well, I think people, you know, I ask people to do all kinds of homework because the psychotherapy I do is CBT, and and I can get them to do that. I can get them to journal about their feelings. I can get them to identify where their negative thoughts come from. But the hardest thing I have found is to get them to work on their breathing. It's, and I've I've tried all different approaches. I've used a program heart math, which gives them a great visual on when they're breathing coherently. And but people and I don't know if it's because they think they don't think that it will really make any difference. But if I could get our listeners to to believe one thing from this show is if you can learn to breathe slow and deep, you can control your emotions better you can control your reactions better. You can control your digestion better. That physical mental connection is the body keeps score of everything that's going on in your brain. So we've got about five minutes left before before the show's over. And I know that a key source of support in your book is M-theory. Let's tell me what it is and how does it support the idea of subtle reality? Well, I can only scratch the surface of what M-theory is in uh, in a few minutes, but I think it's really worth people understanding that physics and M-theory is what you might call on the frontier of physics, has gone way beyond the picture I think most people have of a physical universe filled with mind-numbingly large numbers of stars uh, that had a big bang beginning and is now in its present state. That 
I think uh, uh, is fairly commonly pictured by people today based on the physics of 50, 70, 80 years ago. And it is still true, but M-theory represents you know, one line of thought, one direction of thought that says our physical universe, as enormous as it is, is one bubble in a vast sea of energy and that there could be uncountable other bubbles that are other physical universes within that. You may have heard this sort of uh, in shorthand referred to as the multiverse. And the notion of the multiverse is used differently in many, many different ways by, depending on which physical theory you're trying to, to work it in with. But in M-theory, the notion is that there could be, there doesn't necessarily have to be uh, billions and trillions of other universes, but that this sea of energy in which we are a bubble, our universe is a bubble, uh, has the potential to support uncountable other universes. And that this vast sea of energy is higher in frequency than the energy that we ex can measure and, and know exists within the physical universe. Therefore, you could say it's more subtle. Well, I think and, that's, I think people understand the higher frequencies. I really do. And I think that that's, you know, in, in the last minute or so we have left, I think that's a good place for them to, to leave because you're right. The M theory is, it's very complex. But when I, people tell me, you know, I'm all around all this low negative energy and I need to be around more positive energy. So I think that that's a good thought for us to leave our listeners with is that think about the higher frequencies. I mean, and just think about how you, when you feel down, what do you feel like? You feel slow, you feel low. When you feel happy, then you feel you feel more up. In the last minute we have, if people would like to buy your book, can you tell them where it's available? And if they if you have a website, share that with them. Um, all of my books are available uh, where you would expect to find them. Well, they're all on the, the major uh, e-tailers like Amazon. Um, many bookstores carry them. They're available in uh, Kindle as well as print, and they're also available all in Audible um, in an in a audio format. Uh, increasingly, I'm finding that... Uh, more than half of people who get a copy of the book are getting the audio copies. So it is available for those who like to, you know, listen to their books. Uh, if you want to know more about me, you want to read some more articles uh, that I've written on these various subjects uh, or learn more about the books before you purchase, you can go to my website, which is Joseph Selby. Dot com and Selby is spelled 
unusually different than the SELBY that most people probably think. It's SELBIE. So josephselby.com. Thank you so much, Joseph, for being with us today. And folks, that's Joseph Selby with an IE, not a Y, dot com. Uh, I enjoyed learning about more about the, the spiritual and the science and the integration. Thank you so much for being a guest. My pleasure, Lee. Thanks for having me. Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, Toginet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and thebrainperformancecenter.com. Brain Performance Center.com.